Well, let, let's do this. Let, let's, let's look at Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5. And we're going to pick up where Joe left off last week. We're going to be in Romans 5, looking at verses 6 through 11, which is on the screen behind me, which is amazing. So, uh, Joe, one of the things that the text you guys looked at last week uh, talked about the hope that we can have through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Throughout Romans, Paul uh, builds this case of uh, the fact that salvation is an utterly gracious act of God. It's, it's the story of God moving toward us, not us moving towards God. It's an act full of mercy and full of compassion uh, toward rebellious people who the, very specifically says we are enemies of God. So let me read this and then we'll, we'll, we'll walk through this. Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. For while, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let me pray. God, I pray that as we look at your word, that you would teach us. I pray that, Spirit, that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and, and, and the heart to believe these things, that for those that, are, that actually believe these and are here tonight, would you strengthen them in their understanding of the gospel and its implications. For those tonight wrestling with ideas of faith and they may not even believe these things, would you... Use these words tonight, your words, to help them see the truth and believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I may have used this illustration with you guys here before, or um, if, if you've heard me teach other places, I've, I've used this before. So if you've heard it before, I'm not sorry. Uh, <laughs> some people, when they talk about salvation, they, they, they think of it in terms of uh, like you're on a ship and you're shipwrecked, Right? And, and you're floating in the ocean. And you guys have heard this illustration before? And, 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 the, and the rescuer comes by, and, and you call out and say, help, save me, save me. And the rescuer reaches down, and you reach up, you clasp the hand, and the music crescendos, and you get hoisted up onto the ship, and you've been saved. And that's a great picture of what salvation looks like from the perspective of God and from the perspective of man. It's this great effort where... God sought us out, but we called to him, and together we did it, and it was wonderful. Well, it's wrong. Um, that, that's actually not the picture we get in Scripture at all. The, 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 the more clear picture would be uh, that we were in the shipwreck, and we drowned, and we were in the bottom of the ocean, dead, and our body was decaying, and we were basically you know, being eaten by the sharks and the fish and all the other things down there. And, uh, and the rescue ship came, and they sent divers down. The divers brought my, our corpse up, brought it onto the ship, and somehow they did this CPR, and we breathed life into us, and we breathed. And all we contributed to our salvation was saying, thank you. That's the picture we get in Scripture. I didn't call out. I didn't say, hey, save me. I didn't reach up. It was a complete act of God moving towards me, breathing life into me. And my response to that is just joy. And, and that's what, at the end of the section here we read, that the culmination 
of understanding what God has done for us in the gospel is joy, thankfulness, heart of gratitude, which extends itself in the way that we live and the way that we think and how we interact, is a joy that comes from what God has done for us. So here in chapter 5, as we're, you know, we're in the middle of this first section of chapter 5, we see that we access the salvation not by co-laboring with Christ, meaning we don't, we don't contribute to it at all. We don't access this salvation by being good enough, uh, not even by seeking him, but rather by God seeking us and granting us faith. And as Joe taught on last week, verses 1 and 2 talk about that, where God has actually given us this faith. It's a gift. We don't even contribute the faith. The faith itself is a gift from God. Two of the things we can derive from this, uh, from God's act of kindness toward us in the gospel, are, are two, two things, and we're going to focus on these two things tonight, is that you can have assurance of your salvation. You can know that you're saved. And you can know that you will persevere in your faith if you truly are saved. Those two things we see in this text here. Well, How can we know, you know at, at the end of, of what Joe taught on last week, it talks about in verse 5, about you know character, all these things. At the end it says, character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. How can we know that the hope that Paul talks about there in verses 4 and 5 is not just naive optimism or wishful thinking? Right? Uh, how, how can we know that? Uh, two things. We have the subjective experience with God through the Holy Spirit we also have the objective truth of God revealed in history through Christ's death and resurrection. So we, we have both. We have, we have a subjective experience with God through the Holy Spirit, which is important. But we also, it's not just our experience with God that's important. It's actually rooted in objective truth. The fact that God has spoken and he has acted in history, most notably through sending his son Jesus Christ to live on our behalf and then to die on our behalf. Christopher Ashe, he wrote this great commentary in Romans. He says, To have subjective feelings without the objective anchor of the cross will deprive my assurance of any stability, for I will be at the mercy of my feelings. Right? So if we only rely on the subjective, how I feel and what my experience with God is, based on how I feel that day, I'm going to be all over the place. But feelings are still good, right? But they have to be rooted in objective truth. You need to have both. So he goes on to say, but to have the objective truth without the subjective ministry of the Spirit will leave the cross as theoretical truth. So you can have knowledge of what God has done through his son Jesus Christ on the cross. You can know intellectually, but if the Spirit hasn't worked in your heart to believe that, that just stays out here as, that's a nice idea. That's an interesting world philosophy. So you have to have both. You have to have the personal interaction of the Spirit uniting us to Christ. We also have to have the knowledge of what we're believing in, which is the objective truth of what God has done for us. I'll unpack that a little bit. But the, the, the subjective experience of having the Holy Spirit poured into us, what, what does that look like? Well, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of God's love. And that's at the end of what Joe taught on last week. That's one of the things he's talking about, that God's love is poured into us through the Holy Spirit, which indwells those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the Spirit reminds us that God loves us. Uh, the Spirit moves our affections, He moves our emotions in ways that draw us closer to God and provides assurance of His love and goodness. Now, how does He do that? Sometimes this assurance, it might come, and most often comes, 
as you read God's word. God promises to use his word through his spirit to apply his truth to us. And so there is the subjective relational aspect of the spirit's ministry to us using the objective truth of God's word. Sometimes it might be through prayer. Uh, we know that the Spirit helps our prayers. Uh, we know that uh, as we are praying, the Spirit often will illumine Scripture in our minds or help guide our thoughts or our, our hearts of even how to pray. And sometimes we know the Spirit will take our prayers and present them to God through Jesus Christ, even when we don't know what to pray for. It might be a gentle reminder throughout the day that God loves you through just one of those ordinary kind of weird instances throughout the day. You're like, well, that was odd. But man, that was a good reminder. Of, uh, you know, it could be a, 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 an interaction with a friend that was just sort of coincidence, right? Um, it could be one of those things where, you know, um, it, it just things line up the way, and you're like, God, thank you. It was just, that was your kindness to, to have the day go the way I needed it to go today. Sometimes there are extraordinary things where God works uh, in really amazing ways, providing for you or reminding you of truth. Uh, these things the Spirit loves to, to do to, to remind us of the way that God loves us. But we don't just have subjective experience. We do have that, which is good. Uh, and thankfully, we don't just have that. But the subjective experience needs to be defined and interpreted by objective truth. And we have that objective truth of what God has done for us through what Jesus has done on the cross. If you look at um, those first three verses, six, seven, uh, six, seven and 8... The word die, or some version of die, is, is said four times. Like, you're, it's as if Paul is trying to get our attention, right? Listen to this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Typically, when, when you're writing something and you repeat a word, it means what? Either you have a really small vocabulary, <laughs> which Paul doesn't, or it means, hey, I'm trying to really drive home a point here. And, and that's what this, this whole section here is focusing on, the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, right? His death on the cross is the central theme here in section five. Five things I want to focus on here as we, as we look at just the cross for a second. And this comes from that, that commentary from Christopher Ashe as well. Five things about the cross and, and the death of Jesus Christ that I think is really important for us to get here. One, the time, the timing of, of his death on the cross. He says um, in verse 6, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What does he mean uh, by, by at the right time? Now, he might be referring to what we actually read earlier in Galatians 4, where it said, uh, at the fullness of time, right, God sent his son uh, here at the right time. Now, what that might be referring to is this. <coughs> the, the context of when Jesus came into history is fascinating. I, I, I love, and I, I may have told you guys this before, I love seeing how world history and God's history, church history, overlap. And how God uses the development of the, of the world and technology and things for really particular things. You think about uh, one example of that would be the Reformation. Right before the Reformation of the church, the printing press was invented. No coincidence that God would choose to revive his church when the mechanism to get information out was just exploding, right? Not a coincidence. 
Well, here, at the fullness of time, or at the right time, could mean at the time where the Roman Empire and the, and the, the Roman peace, they had conquered most of the known world. And they had uh, built roads, and there were commerce, and, and trade routes, and communication routes that allowed information and people to get places that was unparalleled in world history. And so now, at the fullness of time, when Jesus comes, and he dies on the cross for his people, the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ has the ability to get out of Jerusalem, out of Rome, out of that part of the world, and all around the known parts of the world quickly. The right time in history that God brought Jesus. So it could mean that, and it certainly uh, would, would be a good interpretation of that. It also, and probably more likely, is referring to the fact that Christ died for us, as he says here, when we were weak. Me- meaning this. This echoes what he says in verse 6 about the, the fact that Jesus is dying for the ungodly. Jesus does not wait for us to get our act together. Right? Jesus doesn't say, you know what? Go away. And once you've gotten your stuff together and you're stopped such a sinner and such a wretched person, once you kind of become better, come back to me. Then we'll talk. He doesn't say that. At the right time, in our time of great need, when we were weak, when we were ungodly, when we were still sinners, it goes even further, when we were enemies of God, he died for us. If you remember back in Romans 3, Paul says, no one seeks after God, not one. All have gone astray. We are enemies of God. Not just like uncomfortable neighbors who don't talk much. No, enemies. Like, not like, yeah, you know, like the, the roommate situation, maybe freshman year, if you're a freshman, I don't know, maybe your roommates are here, so I don't want to say too much, but, you know, I, 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 when I got, when I came as a freshman, I lived in Garber, and they were, they were overcrowded, they had too many uh, enrollees that year, and so I was in a triple in, in Garber, which should be a double, right, and, like, I had, you know, one roommate I got along with pretty well, and then one roommate who would pick his nose and wipe it on the cinder blocks on his loft. Wow. It was disgusting. <laughs> And so we just kind of coexisted and didn't hang out much. And then after freshman year, we saw each other every now and then, just passing, that was it. That's not our relationship with God. We're not just sort of cold, you know, acquaintances. We are enemies of God. And at that time, in our weakness, as an enemy of God, Christ died for us. So the timing of his, of his death was not when we had it together, but at our lowest point. And when we were angry and, and enemies of God, he died for us. The exchange, so, so the timing, but then the exchange that takes place. Do you see that Jesus died in our place? It said he died for us. He took our place in judgment. He took our sin, and he paid the penalty that we deserved. Because every one of us, even if we sinned once, the penalty is death. It's a death sentence. And there's no way for us to make that up. We can't ever be good enough to make it up. And so Jesus stood in our place and he took the punishment. It's a great exchange. He took our place and we actually get his place. That's crazy. But it's what happened. The recipients of of the work on the cross, which is us. We are weak. We are ungodly. We are sinners. It's hardly the resume of anyone who deserves God's grace. That describes every human who has ever lived except for Jesus. 
the magnitude of God's love we see in verse 7. Verse 7, he, he talks about uh, the fact that in human terms, we might be willing to die for someone who we consider to be righteous or even a good person. You know, I, I can imagine that. Like, I, I, I could imagine, like, dying for my family, for my wife, for my kids. I could imagine doing that because I love them. Um, but I can't imagine doing that for Joe, you know? Um, <laughs> maybe. If you give me those tacos, then I, I would do about anything for those tacos. <laughs> what Paul is saying here, though, is like in our best day, in our best frame of mind, in our best, in our best heroic effort, we might die for somebody that we consider good and righteous and, and that we, would, we, we love, right? But the magnitude of God's love is this. He didn't die for people that were good and, and, and generally righteous people. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for people who were not seeking him, who were not good people, but rather he died for rebellious enemies. Think about that. Who, you know, I don't know if you guys think in terms of like, who was my enemy? I don't really think that way, but think about a category of person that would be really hard for you to want to even like buy lunch for, let alone give them something that you have, like, a, you know, hey, just have my car or here. Think about dying for that person or that category of person. God, that God's love has demonstrated to us that while we are his enemies, he died for us. So the, the magnitude of his love on the cross. And then, and then this, the proof, where you know, he says in, um, in verse 8, but God shows his love for us in this. The proof of God's love is this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross proves the magnitude and the depth and the scandalous nature of God's love for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And that leads us to uh, what I mentioned earlier, this great assurance of our salvation. If Jesus didn't die for us because of who we are or what we've done or because we're pretty good, if he died for us when we were enemies of him, there is nothing we can do to separate from his love now. Do you hear that? If he didn't die for us because we were pretty good, there's nothing we can do if we're pretty bad to separate us from his love if we truly believe in Jesus Christ, right? His love for us is not based on conditions that we can affect or change. His love for us is based on his great grace and mercy, and that is it. We have this positional relationship with God that's not dependent on our works, meaning positional relationship, meaning we are brought in and called children of God. And the position we have now is a reconciled relationship with him, and that can never be taken away by anything that we do if we have a true faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I, I, I love uh, my two children. Uh, from the moment that we got pregnant with them, we, we, we love them. Uh, this is not based on what we knew they would do for us or what they already had done, because they hadn't done anything for us yet. <laughs> it was based on our desire to love them, right? And they can't make us love them less. Now, there are times I like them less. <laughs> Certainly. Just the other day. So I think I've told you guys this before. Like my, my son doesn't sleep well. So oftentimes we end up bringing him into our room around 4 a.m. when he wakes up and is yelling, all done, all done, out, get out. You know? So we bring him into bed. He sometimes will sleep better next to one of us. But what he does often is he, is he cuddles right up next to me. And he looks at me and he goes, it's like 4 in the morning. He's like, Happy Dad. <laughs> Happy Dad. Happy Declan. I said, no, Declan. It's 
sleepy, Dad. <laughs> Get some rest. And then he, like, pokes my eyes. <laughs> and then he, like, flops around a lot. And then every now and then he flops and he cracks one of us in the head. Like, and it hurts so bad. And I'm, like, just furious. It's 4.30 in the morning. You know, my wife has a bloody nose now. because you know, My son had headbutted her, the bully, you know. And then last week, um, sometimes when I have meetings out late, like tonight, this is probably going to happen, uh, my wife will let my daughter fall asleep in our bed with her because it when I'm not there they like to that's just as comforting for her so I come home often and, and Addie is on my side of the bed and so I'll try to I'll scoop her up and take her into her room this night like I scooped up to take her into her room and she woke up in the process and she was furious because she didn't want to be out of our bed and so she sat on the end of her bed at 10 30 at night like this <laughs> and I'm like sweetie you have to go to bed I don't want to <laughs> I want to sleep in your bed Addie is 10 30 I am not going to argue with you right now go to bed no I'm like, oh, uh. <laughs> In those moments, I'm not liking them very much. I still love them. And I demonstrate my love by letting them live, right? <laughs> and I prove that, you know, I, I, I pursue them, I love them, I'm kind to them, and I tell them I love them. Uh, you know, they, but they, they have that, that subjective experience of, of love from me and my wife. They also have the objective data to know that it's true because of what we provide for them. Right, and what we have done for them. They have both of those things, and that, that's important. You know, how much more does our Heavenly Father love us in demonstrating it through the cross of Jesus Christ? You know, he's proven it at such a great cost, not just losing sleep over us. No, he gave up his own son so that we might be called his children. So hear this. Do you understand there's nothing you can do to separate you from God's love? If you believe in Jesus Christ and have trusted in him for your salvation, there's nothing you can do now that will help you lose that and hear this God is not angry with you he can't be why why can God not be angry with you now because his anger was fully satisfied by pouring it out on his son Jesus Christ on the cross his wrath his anger was satisfied and I have a hard time remembering that when I sin I think man God must be really angry with me no God's wrath for my past, present, and future sins was paid on Jesus Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ in me, which is crazy. If Jesus died for you when you were ungodly and weak and rebellious, he's not going to abandon you if you demonstrate those things now. Right? If he died for you when you were those things, if you, in, in, a, in a rough patch or a season of slipping, he's not going to go, you know, you know what, the, the deal is off. It's not like God thought you were pretty good when he saved you. And then once he got to know you, he's like, oh, man. She is so much more messed up than I thought. I made a huge mistake. It's not like that first date where you put your best foot forward and try to dupe your date, right? And then you, 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 then you have multiple dates, and you're like, oh. <laughs> like, okay. It's a little weird. <laughs> I'm just not going to call you again, you know? Um, it's not like that. God knows us fully. When he chose to save us, he didn't make a mistake. He chose to save us while we were still sinners. So the implications of this are summarized here in verse 11, which is this. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Right? It's joy. It leads us to the joy of Norma God has done for us. And it leads us to obedience and thankfulness for the assurance we can have. Now, quickly, I just want to look at the second part here, which is this. 
that we can rest in the perseverance of our faith. Verses 9 and 10. Here uh, is interesting. You know, he says, Our past justification guarantees our future salvation. Where in verse 9 he says, Since therefore we have now been justified, that's past tense, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So it's a past and a future thing here. It, it, justification is this legal term of being declared innocent. Justified means you're declared innocent before God. Right? It's a one-time declaration. You're pardoned from your sins because of Jesus. And in the eyes of God, justice has been served because somebody paid for those sins. Jesus actually paid for your sins. Justice has been served by his blood. And God's wrath, like I said, has been satisfied. The debt that we owe it has been paid. There's no outstanding balance. We can look to our justification in Christ as a guarantee that we will persevere until the end. There is not one person whom Christ died for, whom he paid for their sins, that will not be saved from God's wrath. Let me say that in the positive. In other words, everyone whom has been justified will be glorified. That's from Romans 8, meaning this. If you have been saved, if Christ actually paid for your sins on the cross, and by faith you have now accessed that salvation, you are promised that he will keep you and preserve you until either you die and go to heaven or Christ comes back and ushers you into glory. That is a promise. And it's based on the justification, on the, the work of Jesus Christ. You know, when I was approaching graduation here, I, had, I was thinking, I wondered if I still owed something. And I did. Uh, I had a lot of parking tickets. <laughs> and I actually had to go to the parking service office and pay a pretty huge fine in order for them to let me uh, actually receive my paper diploma. <laughs> they were going to withhold. I got something in the mail. So you will not get a diploma if you don't pay this fine. So they got even more of my stinking money. <laughs> With God, we don't have to wonder if in the end there's going to be a balance due. Because Jesus has freed us from any past, present, or future debt with God. We have been justified by his blood. And then in verse 10, he basically says the same thing in another way. Our current reconciliation with God. And in verse 10, he says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We're no longer enemies of God, but we have a restored relationship with him because Jesus took our place. And his resurrection from the dead is the guarantee that death is not the end for those that believe. And this leads us again to that summary in verse 11, which is, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's this strong tie between the reconciliation we have with God and the idea of being brought or adopted into his family. There's... There's the story of this young boy who, um, who was adopted by a family, and years later they were driving by a courthouse. And his dad asked him if he knew what that was, and the young boy said, yeah, that's where I was born. He was thinking that's where he was born because that's where he was brought into this family through adoption, through the legal declaration, you are mine, right? It's the place where a judge declared that he was now a member of this family. And everything that this family had, he now had. His future was now one that was determined by this new family identity. Right? When we are reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, our future is now determined by this new family. God's family through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it happened in a courtroom where God was the judge. And God said, you are innocent and you are mine. 
because your penalty has been paid for through my son, Jesus Christ. Welcome. And if God has declared us innocent and has reconciled to, us, to himself, brought us into his family, you can guarantee that he will keep us and bring us home in eternity. He will not let you go. If he paid for you, he's not going to let you go. Right? Quick application here. This should free us up from the guilt-based living and from works-based living. What I mean by that is this. Guilt-based living says this. I'm not good enough. God can't love me. Works-based living says this. I'm pretty good. God should love me. Grace-based living or gospel-based living says this. I'm not good enough, but God loves me fully. And that's shown through Jesus Christ. With the assurance of our salvation and the guarantee of our perseverance, guys, we have the freedom to live a life of joy and delight and obedience. When we stumble, we don't have to beat ourselves up. We don't have to wonder if God still loves us. He has already demonstrated that in the greatest way possible. The giving of his son. God shows his love for us in this. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He's already proven it. When you doubt, come back to that truth over and over again. What else could God do to prove his love? We don't have to worry if we will persevere to the end. If you have trusted in Christ by faith, he will hold you fast. And he will keep you to the end. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would encourage us in these words that you would strengthen our minds that you would again for those that believe that you would help those who wrestle with guilt shame doubt uh, wrestle with understanding if you do actually love them and for those who are wrestling with even the understanding of, of what the bible is saying or who you are what jesus did i pray that you would use this as a means by which you draw them to yourself I pray these things in christ's name amen